Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, Episode 29. This time, Professor Olson and his class discuss chapters 7 through 11 of the children's classic by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, so in the last class, I was talking a little bit about the kind of hodgepodge nature of Narnia and how we get all kinds of different uh, stories and um, myths thrown in there. Um, and, you know, we were sort of, we looked a little bit about, how, about, about the relationship between the Narnian creatures and the stories that we get on this side of the wardrobe. Um, a phrase which told you, Lewis, excuse me, used in this, uh, in this portion of the reading today, um, which I thought was a really interesting one, actually, um, because, you know, he talks about um, back on this side of the wardrobe door, um, which I, th- I thought really emphasized what we were talking about last time, that is sort of the two different worlds with the idea of this really quite thin partition between them, um, and the kind of equal footing that it puts them in. Of course, you remember originally... Uh, back when this, when the other kids all thought that Lucy was mad um, or lying, they would talk about it like there's a magic kingdom inside the wardrobe. There's, you know, Lucy's Lucy's magic kingdom, um, as if it were, you know, this sort of small contained thing that was in some sense inside the wardrobe, um, and therefore obviously highly subordinated uh, to our world, at least geographically. We can see, of course, that Mr. Tumnus's assumptions are quite different. In fact, something almost opposite, right? From the other side of the wardrobe door, his assumptions about our world are really quite a good deal more grandiose, right? Remember the, the whole, you know, the, the city of wardrobe and the nation of spare room and all that. Um, so, but here, you know, so, but, but in that one phrase, which again, I just sort of, sort of jumped out at me as I was reading through, um, we can see this sort of sense of these two worlds side by side with a wardrobe door in between. And as I said, we can see some of the relations. Both of them have stories about each other, right? You know, in our world, of course, uh, the children have read some of the stories about things like what they have met uh, or what they are meeting now in Narnia. And in Narnia, of course, we see on Mr. Cummins' bookshelf that he has some stories about, uh, about humans, too. Though you notice, what kinds of humans does he have? He have books about Right, he and that, which he has a story which sounds like one of our stories. Or it's about Silenus and Bacchus. Though, of course, when he is talking to Lucy and telling Lucy stories about Narnia, we learn that Bacchus and Silenus, of course, are actually uh, Narnian characters. Um, so that turns out to be an instance not of story crossover, but another example of something which is just a story in our world, which turns out to be actually true in Narnia. Jordan? Um, medieval humans, he refers to monks and gamekeepers, is a man of myth. Yeah, monks and gamekeepers, specifically. And, which is interesting, right? That is, the, the Narnian mythology is somewhat out of date, right? It's, uh, it's, it's somewhat archaic. The Narnian mythology about our world. Um, they don't seem, at least Mr. Tumnus doesn't own any books about, <coughs> you know, express trains or anything like that. Um, so that I think is sort of a tiny bit interesting. But anyhow, um, over on the other side of the wardrobe door, uh, when we're encountering all of these Narnian creatures, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about what we see 
Um, as I said, I kind of I said not, not quite, I hope, dismissively, uh, that it's sort of a hodgepodge of different things. But of course, what I want to do today is kind of go back because that's obviously no reason not to think about them. Um, you know, I mentioned that Tolkien was annoyed by how inconsistent it all was and how much these elements didn't really fit together to make one consistent uh, whole. But that doesn't mean that Lewis isn't doing something. He's not doing the thing that Tolkien likes and that Tolkien likes to do in his books. But he is doing something. What is he doing? What do we see in Narnia? Let's sort of look at some of these different elements and try to talk about, just like we did way back on, the, on day one of The Princess and the Goblin, looking at the goblin world as we see it and its relationship uh, to, the, to, the, to the downstairs world. Uh, I, I want to talk here about what we see in Narnia. What, what kind of magic kingdom is this? What, what do we see when we enter through this portal into, into this different kind of fair? Yeah. It reminded me a lot of Lord Dunsany's magic kingdom because they reference things that we are familiar with. So it's harkening back to this idea that we knew about Narnia. We, somewhere in our distant past, we have this understanding, this innate human understanding of this other world. Yeah, and both give that same sort of impression that the fairy tales that we have read and that some of us have read are in some sense true, right? Um, that was certainly the case in Lord Dunstan, and here even I'm thinking of uh, you know some of the funny moments in Lord Dunstan, um, such as the knight who tries to break into the Gibbelins uh, horde, you know, who evokes the genre restrictions uh, of his narrative in order to, to tame the dragon, right? Um, that is clearly in that world the traditional stories of knights slaying dragons have actual force, which even the dragons recognize. Um, now, it's a different kind of connection here, but certainly we can see, like the Bacchus and Silenus thing. Silenus uh, you know, is a character from Greek mythology. Bacchus, of course, uh, a major deity. That's his Roman name. Um, but uh, here, they're really here. In our world, they're just stories. Here, they're not just stories. But it seems that many of the things true of them in stories are true of them here, too. Tell me some, some, some major elements. I, I, I want to I kind of approach this sort of simply. What do you find in Narnia? Tell me what makes Narnia different from our world. In some ways, it's less different, I think, than Lord Dunsany's magic worlds. The names are certainly less alien, which I think is, has a very important effect. Mark? Well, on the discussion board, I know we were discussing um, the idea of the animals and how they, that's obviously a huge difference. The animals are... Um, are different than the animals in this world. And I, I, there was discussion about how you know, they related to people. And I, I was thinking about it this morning, and it's not so much that the animals are animals and the people are people, but that they're all just persons. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of the things that I wanted to pick up on. So I thought that was an interesting discussion. I'd like to hear more of you talk about it, um, because I have evidence that you've been thinking about it. Um, yeah, good. And... and this is not just... The animals are in a strange kind of situation, right? On the one hand, this is not just normal animals acting in normal ways, except you can understand their normal animal talk. But at the same time, it's also not just people... Or like personified animals. That is, you know, something like the wind in the willows where we get a story which is ostensibly about animals, but there's nothing animal-like at all other than a few accidents 
uh, you know, like that mole happens to live in a hole in the ground, for instance. But other than that, he acts very little like a real mole. Um, toad certainly acts precious little like a real toad. Um, so there, I, we're not, most of the time, in that story, we're not supposed to be thinking of them as animals at all. Um, they're just, yeah, what's, the, what's the opposite of personified? Animalified? Animal, be, 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 this weekend, come up with a word. It's <laughs> like personify, but for animals. That's your assignment. Anyway, okay, so anyway, that's what we see in The Wind of the Wills. And again, we're not supposed to be thinking about, like, they're not relating to each other as badger relates to mole, or as mole relates to toad. They're just people in animal form, fundamentally. These animals are not quite like that. Mr. Beaver still builds stamps and is interested in things that beavers are interested in. Um, but yet, as I said, this is also not like, you know, a nature documentary with dialogue, either. I mean, in addition to building dams, they also cook and use sewing machines. Rob? Um, I'm just saying, what the term you wanted is called uh, anthropomorphism. That, no, that's, that's making it to people. I want to... What's the parallel route to anthropo? Ooh, that's interesting. We use zoomorphism. Yeah, zoomorphism. Yeah. Duck in one class. Hey, that's good. Zoomorphism. Yeah. See, it's not useless. There you go. Just teasing. Right. Zoomorphic. Yeah, well, let's go with that. That's good. Now, of course, the problem is that like, the, 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 the Greek root of the zoo is zoe, which just means life. Um, but anyway, it's, it's fine. It's way better than anything I was coming up with, so that's good. Um, where do we see... Tell me where Narnia's animals rest on this. What is the narrative effect of the talking animals of Narnia? What, what, what seems to be the general trend that we see here in this magic kingdom. What is the, sort of the nature of this magic kingdom, given, especially thinking about the talking animals? They're more like people, right? What's the effect of that? Think about the goblins, for instance. The goblins change from people. Right, they were people, they become different from people, and their world is therefore, we were looking at some of the interesting similarities between their world and the upstairs world, that is, upstairs from them, the downstairs with the first floor world uh, in McDonald's story. We know that the children are interested in animals. Right? It's the first thing they're thinking about when they want to explore the land around the big house when they arrive. Are they animals that they might see? What do you think? What do we do with the talking animals? Is this man getting closer to nature? I think it, um, I'm not sure I have a definitive conclusion, but 
I think it just adds to the otherworldliness and yet also the familiarity of the world because he chooses very normal animals, beavers, robins, um, leopards, which are, you know, everyone, they know, those, the children know what a leopard looks like even yeah. though they haven't encountered one. Yeah. Um, and he's not pointing, he, he's kind of staying in between person and animal. He, I think he's creating a third zone for these mm-hmm. creatures. Um, they are not the beavers of our world. They are not humans of our world. They are beavers of Narnia, and that is a different category. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember in this context um, one, I think, a crucial thing about Narnia, not all of the animals talk. There are also regular non-talking dumb animals, as they are called, meaning that they don't talk. Though they're also called witless. I mean, that is, they're not that intelligent. They're not abnormally, they're just, they're as intelligent as animals usually are. But they're not talking animals. And so, I, mean, I think Mark is right. We clearly have a third category created here. A third category which is in some sense in between the normal animal category and the normal people category. And again, I think the presence of non-talking animals really emphasizes that in our um, one interesting thing I've heard about the non-animals in I'm not sure how it applies to the animals yet, um, is that they tend to be one to a mythically associated with extremes of emotion. Bacchus, Silenus, and to some extent Father Christmas are associated with revelry, although obviously different types of revelry between Bacchus and Father Christmas. <laughs> and wolves are notoriously dowling, you know, un- unfriendly, even when they're, you know, working with someone or forging magic rings or whatever. Yeah, and keep in mind, uh, coming from Tolkien, Tolkien's dwarves are weird, um, even for Tolkien's world. That is, uh, the dwarves, the, the, the mythical tradition, um, or I should say the mythological tradition that Tolkien draws his dwarves from, and Lewis as well, um, is the Norse tradition. Um, and dwarves are generally bad guys in the Norse tradition. They're not here. So when, in writing The Hobbit, Tolkien self-consciously did a, a strange and unusual thing. Even in Tolkien's own earlier unpublished writings, prior to the publication of The Hobbit, dwarves were bad guys. Um, and then he shifted it around. Uh, and, of course, if you've read The Hobbit, you know that they're not always all good all the way through, and Bilbo has his doubts in the end, or near the end, about uh, what position he's gotten himself into, and can he count on these dwarves at all, um, but he had reason to doubt. All the readers would have had reason to doubt. Um, but, so, and you can see Lewis is picking up on this too. We meet dwarfs in the context of the dwarf henchmen of the White Witch. Um, we only have two so far categories of creatures who work for the, well, three, three, three categories of people who work for the White Witch. Who are they? Yeah, wolves primarily, and traitors, right? <laughs> that is Edmund. Uh, he was the third I added at the last minute. Though we, we do know that some others are on her side, right? We know that she can suborn others to serve her, like Mr. Tumnus, temporarily, and some of the treats Mr. Beaver points to. Um, so, yeah, dwarves, and, but though recall, Mrs. Beaver does speak up for the dwarves. Um, she does point out that she has no good dwarves, and Mr. Beaver grants that. But precious few. Jordan? That fits very much with the Norse myths, where when they're not bad guys, they're, you know, 
forging magic wonders of the gods and you know Dropnir and Mjolnir, uh, all those you know famous wonders of the gods were forged by those although generally not particularly friendly to them, which again clearly reinforces the wall woods as jokes and also as these you know, extremes of emotion characters that fit in many as a theme. Mm-hmm. Independent if not hostile is sort of at least the tradition of dwarves uh, that 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 Lewis is drawn from. Um, yeah, the extreme of emotion thing is interesting. There are certainly, though again, we don't see them always acting in their traditional terms. I mean, like for instance, uh, we haven't yet, in the, through today's reading, met any centaurs uh, in Narnia. We will eventually meet centaurs in Narnia, and when we do, we'll find them nothing like the centaurs of uh, the Greek and Roman mythological tradition, uh, in which they're different from how they <laughs> in Narnia. Um, you'll, you'll be... I mean, that is, they, they're, uh, like, sexually rapacious, completely intemperate, um, uh, fly into furies, and try to rape people a lot. Um, <laughs> that's what centaurs are like. Um, I mean, the, they come and bust up weddings and try to rape the bride, and I, it's, they're not good people. There are some, I was going to say some exceptions, one actually exception, Chiron the centaur, who is the learned tutor uh, of Achilles, but that's the exception (laughs) to that rule. Um, We won't see centaurs acting like that, fortunately. Uh, In Narnia, they act differently. Um, They act, in fact, quite like the centaurs in J.K. Rowling largely because J.K. Rowling seems to have lifted her centaurs almost directly out of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, uh, that is, looking at the stars and making prophecies, and um, though they are, uh, uh, J.K. Rowling's uh, centaurs are a good deal more touchy. Though even, even the implications of like the higher dignity of the centaurs and how that might be offended is still, she's still developing uh, that from an idea uh, in in. Lewis's books, but anyway, sorry, Matt. Oh, yes, I was going to say, uh, I mean, here's independent but not hostile. Would you no, no, if not hostile. No. Independent if not hostile. Would you perhaps phrase that as the dwarves being for the dwarves? Uh, they do show that alarming tendency quite early on, which uh, gets exaggerated uh, later on. Mike, of course, is referring to the famous scene in Book 7, uh, the one book that everybody agrees what its number is, uh, The Last Battle, uh, when the dwarfs' motto is the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think that we can, uh, we can sort of see that earlier, and their loyalties are never uh, completely clear at almost any point universally. But... I want to, Marta, I want to pick up on something that you said, or I want to emphasize something that you said, because I think it's really important. That is, in the Talking Beasts of Narnia, we see two things emphasized, I think, pretty clearly. One is this sort of the strangeness of this, that you, there is this new experience that they have, that the children have, of relating to what is obviously, identifiably an animal. Um, I mean, they recognize Mr. Beaver. He's like, look, it's a beaver, right? I saw, I saw his tail. I know he's... And what's more, they, they can predict things about him, right? They see the dam, and they're like, oh, yeah, beavers make dams. That must be his dam. And so they think to compliment, nice dam, Mr. Beaver. And he's like, oh, merely a trifle, right? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they're, they're... But, you know, so this, these talking animals, their, their ability to relate to them, very different, and yet the whole thing is also very comforting. They're human-like enough 
that when they have that strange and unexpected and very unusual experience of being taken into the beaver's lodge and given dinner, when they're served dinner, it is an extremely comforting dinner. Right? It is, in fact, a, not only the kind of thing that they might expect to be served at home, but a quite excellent example of what they might expect to be served at home, uh, down, to the, down to the very sticky marmalade roll uh, that Mrs. Beaver has kept in the oven. So I, I think that the, that, that, that combination of, of familiarity and foreignness and strangeness is, I think, a really important thing here. Um, this is another thing, by the way, that Tolkien clearly does very explicitly in The Hobbit as well. You can see that same desire to, on the one hand, make connections um, with things that the audience is familiar with, but then also to be inviting them to encounter the strangeness, the kind of strangeness that Lord Dunsany just, like, chucks you into unapologetically, um, often making you kind of looking around, sort of look around yourself in bewilderment. Um, Lewis is very much more gentle about that. MacDonald is very much more gentle about that. Um, and I think we can, see, we can see sort of a similar thing there, the gentleness with which Irene is kind of introduced to the strange things that surround her both upstairs and downstairs. Jordan? Um, one thing that the Mr. B-Boy Star Scale is really interesting to compare to the bit with the his expression on his face, like someone would be showing their story they better. You know, so the physiological qualities, it also implies that he has a face like a person while it's still being, you know, clearly a beaver who catches fish with his hands and has a tail. So just, uh, it's like really exactly all. There's clearly some kind of scale, and obviously it's a third category, but because you have those points of reference, you've got to know where it is fit. The third category that you know somehow leaps off the scale entirely is, is a really inviting theory. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, they, these elements combine to make this very different category. Um, yeah, and I want to think of some of the other things that which also make different categories. What about the nymphs? We haven't met any nymphs yet, but we've heard about them. What do we know about nymphs? I know we haven't read Mr. Tumnus's book about nymphs, so we don't know as much as we might. Sam? That they look like people, but they're something very much other than a person. I think that in the description, when Edmund sees one who can turn this down, I can't he identify the fact that it's not a person when he looks at it? Yes. Yes, he can. Um, yeah, they are like people. They're called the spirits of trees. They're, 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 they're connected. These are the dryads, of course. They're also naiads who are connected with streams, and we hear about the river god, and you know, there are references to the gods of the, of the fields and streams as well. Um, so Narnia features not only animals, which act kind of like people, or at least a little bit like people, and talk, but it also features... Animate, inanimate things as well? Or rather, the inanimate things like trees and rivers have, well, have conscious beings attached to them. One sense of this, one result of this is certainly to give the sense that, that Narnia is a good deal more alive and active than our world. I think, especially of the scene where they meet Mr. Beaver. Right, and they sneak into the middle of the thicket, and he still won't talk. And they're like, the, the, the kids are like, there's, there's nobody around. Like, who are we hiding from? It's like, the trees are listening. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they never thought that. They, I mean, they assumed that they were alone because they were just completely surrounded by trees, 
right? Au contraire, not so in Narnia. Um, you're completely surrounded by trees, and the trees are always listening. You can't always automatically trust all those trees. Um, so I, I think that that's a... And, and, but this is a different thing. The nymphs uh, and you know, the river gods and such are, seem to me in a different category than the talking animals. This is not just, hey, let's imagine that beavers can talk. Well, while we're at it, let's imagine that trees can talk. We don't get that here. And Tolkien does that. Lewis doesn't. What does he give us instead? What's the difference between dryads, as we hear of them here in Narnia, and just a talking tree, like a Mr. Badger-esque talking tree? Okay? I guess with the, the animals, it's... It's an animal, but it talks, so it's something familiar, but it has a foreign element. With the talking of trees, it appears familiar, or appears human in its naya-dryad form, but is very clearly not. Because we don't expect a tree to have a, a human form, or like if I'm sitting under an apple tree and suddenly the apple tree talk, is talking, I'll be very surprised. But I guess when I'm younger, I, I want the animals to talk. Yeah, and if you think, like, if you put Mr. Badger next to a non-talking badger, they'd be different. I mean, like, one is a hatchet, for one thing, but uh, even apart from that, they're, 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 they don't look the same. They don't act the same. They're different. Talking animals are a different species of animal. Living trees are not a different species of tree. It's a perfectly normal peach tree that has a dryad living in it and associated with it. And who can get out and walk around. The dryad, it's, what exactly is their nature? Well, again, not having read Mr. Thomas's book, we're not really sure, but they, they're, they're called the spirits of the trees. We see, uh, we see a stone one in the witch's castle. Um... <coughs> We hear about the fact that not only in Narnia do some of the animals talk, but that the trees are in some sense animated, though again, not literally, not like, there's not like this is a talking maple tree and that's a non-talking maple tree, but that within, beneath, some of these apparently inanimate things in Narnia, there are these semi-divine, semi-spiritual, semi-physical, clearly physical enough to be turned to stone, beings. Where do fawns fit into this? We're also going to get centaurs and other half-human, half-animal creatures later on. Yeah, but I said it kind of falling in between the, uh, sorry, nymphs that we were talking about discussing have uh, human characteristics, but they're still half-animals too, so kind of in between the yeah. Now, compare and contrast Mr. Tumnus and Mr. Beaver. That is, we've got two creatures who seem to be in a kind of a halfway position between humans and animals. Mr. Tumnus, like physically, literally, his bottom half is animal, his top half is human. Most of it. Plus horns. Uh, and Mr. Beaver, half human or between animal and human in a different sense. Obviously not a physical one. 
do you think about them? What's the sort of similarities or differences between? Are these discrete categories, or, 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 or do we put them together? What's the effect of these? Um, in a sense, I guess I would put them together because um, at least both from what I well, he's not Lewis isn't like creating, I guess, any sort of new category or species or or race or anything. He's taking things that are like already known to us. I guess like sort of like feeding off of an already embedded mysticism, I guess. In order to like make us relate and become fascinated with these creatures, so we, even though um, centaurs don't exist, like we, we know people generally know their history and know what they're like. And then even though talking beavers don't exist, and people in general seem to identify with animals or personify animals, especially if they have faces. Like, children all have favorite animals, and it's, it's very... As we can see in Chapter 1. Yeah. So it's very much with both of both the creatures, like, no, nothing new is being presented. We're, we're just sort of beating off of an already existing, I guess, fascination. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that that's a really important thing. And, and here I would go back to a, uh, a statement by Tolkien that I've already quoted several times um, from on fairy stories, which is where he says that fairy stories are not about possibility, they're about desirability. Um, it's about stirring and awakening desire. Um, and that he argues that fairy stories that are, very, that are effective are ones that tap into these fundamental desires that not just children, but people have. Um, the ability to communicate with the natural world is one of them. Um, the ability to talk to animals. Um, and, but I think also there's that sense of you're reading this story and within this story you find that all other stories, all these other stories are coming true. Now, of course, that's not always universally comfortable. Some of the bad stories come true also. As Edmund sees, there are giants and apparently dragons, too, in Narnia. He sees a creature he thinks is a dragon, anyway, among the statues in the witch's court. Um, and he sees a giant. So, and of course we have the witch herself. So obviously, stories coming true is not a universally comfortable thing. But there certainly is both the arousing and the satisfying of desire in that. Um, I think it's interesting to compare the children's reactions to Narnia when they're actually when they see it and they're convinced that it's you know and, 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 and Peter is all excited to be having adventures with Peter's attitude back in chapter one with the possibilities of this new house and this new place there might be anything here um, in the house in the lands around. And this, that's, of course, what leads them to speculate about the animals. Right? There might be hawks and stags and bunnies and all kinds of things. Right? Depending on who you are. You want different things. Um, but in Narnia, we see the same thing, though it's interesting. I love the moment. One of my favorite moments in this uh, whole reading for today is when Peter gets his genres mixed up. Right? 
you know the you know the moment I'm talking about where he's like, okay, so this is a place. This is like a place where stories come true. So Edmund is missing, and she's captured in the castle. So what's he want to do? Storm the castle. Well, I mean, he's, he thinks about storming it, but also dressing up as a peddler. Yeah, can we dress up as peddlers or something and sneak in? Like, what's you know? I, I you see, he, he's thinking like, no, sorry, Peter, wrong, wrong genre, right? You're not in like. You know, like boy detective mystery or something. <laughs> totally different genre of story. You can't go and like <coughs> pretend to be the handyman who's coming to see about the drains. But he does that later. He does that later. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what he does in the last battle. This is his idea, <laughs> right? But that—that's in our world. That's not in Narnia. It doesn't work in Narnia. You can't do it. So he's—he's. He's, you know, he—I I love the idea. Let's pretend that we're peddlers and do what? Like show up and hide. Um, can we peddle something here and sneak in and rescue? He wants to do a daring rescue. Um, no, no. Wrong genre. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead because I, I read through it. But um, then when he's actually faced with doing the heroic thing, the way Lewis describes it is very not what yeah. Peter pictures at all. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah, and that is a really interesting moment. It is in Monday's reading, but it is a really interesting moment where the reality of when he finally is himself really taking part in, rather than, I mean, at, at this point, through today's reading, their involvement in the story is all almost completely theoretical still. That is, they've heard the story of what's going on, they've recognized, they're told that they have this part in it, they've done one thing, which is to get up and go out with the beavers and walk through the night and be in hiding. It's been kind of exciting, but... They've not yet actually been called upon really to do anything and to take an active role in this story. And Peter's going to be fighting battles and he's going to be generaling battles. That's not a verb, but it should be. Um, later on in this book. So there's where he is now. Okay, congratulations, Peter. You are now the main character in one of these stories that you've read. And of course, he's going to find that it doesn't turn out to be quite the same as he had always imagined it to be. Um, it's not just it is not is not just a fantasy realm in that sense. It's a place where wishes come true. It's a place where stories come true, where everything you always wished were real in our world really is real. Hooray! You can even think of the Turkish delight in this context, right? I mean, here's Edmund's fantasy of. Endless sweets. A room full of candy. He's, he totally believes that. There are whole rooms full of Turkish delight in which time. Oh, great. My everyday dream coming true. And he's making new ones, right? Where the principal railways will be, right? How many personal cinemas he's going to own when he becomes king of Narnia. He's making a very different set of dreams and, and, and writing a very different narrative that he's going to be the protagonist of. Now, of course, he finds this is not, in fact, going to come true um, any more than the Turkish delight is going to appear later on. So I mean, we should be looking at sort of the relationship between these narratives and these stories and the actual reality of Narnia. As I said, it's not just the place where everything that you wish would happen happens. It's all right, Christina. Um, oh, I guess it's not really that story, but... I don't know, his, his like really strong desire for Turkish delight and just every I can't remember what exactly their reactions are, but like when 
when like everyone hears the name like I don't know Aslan. Aslan, yeah. Aslan, like he's the only one with like a negative reaction. Like what was I gonna say? Something like I mean, uh, I mostly want to wait until next time to talk about Aslan. Um, we haven't met him yet, and we will. Um, there will be plenty of Aslan to talk about next time. <laughs> but, but that is a really important moment, and I think that we can think about that moment in connection with with these things, with these desires, and the way in which Narnia satisfies desires. Um, Something is stirred up within each of them when they hear the name of Aslan. And we see Peter and Susan and Lucy attaching it to joyful things. There's just a joyful desire attached to it. Um, Aslan's is, the, the name of Aslan evokes in them the most sort of happy, satisfying things. With Edmund Filson with mysterious horror. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that is a really important moment. We can see the way, again, that their desires uh, are connected with the things happening around them. Uh, it, it doesn't always work out like they might want. He has to deceive himself, and is actively deceiving himself, as he, of course, <coughs> recognizes when everything comes crashing down and the bitch starts being cruel. Yeah, Jordan? Yeah. Um, one thing regarding the, 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 the formal that we're in back, the, the creatures like the nymphs and the fawns. There's a bit of a question to Beaver gets that really confused me regarding that, which is that he said anything that looks human and, and isn't is is you know bad you should probably fit with an axe, basically. So I'm wondering the nymphs have seen that I've never seen the acolytes on Glowstone, but they're generally described as not hostile terms. And Mr. Thomas is a pretty cool guy, except for, you know, he doesn't actually want to go along with what he's agreed to do once he realizes what it means. So I'd say that's pretty Pretty noble. Why? Why is Mr. Beaver advocating all these people with his hatchet? Uh, no, he just says, re- just, just reach for your hatchet, right? I think he suggests you be prepared to defend yourself. Not like if you see something that looks human that isn't, bash it on the head with your hatchet quickly and hard. I don't, I don't, I don't think he's being quite that aggressive. But, but he does certainly caution against that. Well, it's cool. Some seems somewhat risky since I think the one of the things we need. Shortly after that, it looks human, but isn't is in fact Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) Never be too careful. (laughs) First of all, I think that Mrs. Beaver's corrections suggest that Mr. Beaver is perhaps being a bit over hasty in his generalization. Speciest. Yes, exactly. Uh, And she she's. You know, her dwarf comment is a kind of gentle rebuke, right? Uh, it's actually not always true. But this leads to the larger question that I wanted to ask next anyway, which is what is the place of humanity in Narnia? What do we see about that? And how does that fit into this system? Like, for instance, we saw the whole goblin subculture uh, in The Princess and the Goblin established in opposition. Like, the whole focus of their society is rebellion against and opposition against the human society. Um, how is Narnian society oriented towards, related to humans? Oh, I was just wondering if 
it was in this book that we got the line that um, Narnia is not a country for men, but it is a country for men to be kings. No, we, I don't think so. It does all run together after a while, doesn't it? I don't think so. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit later on. Matt? It seems that uh, humans primarily exist here as kind of a, a metaphor or a spiritual dream stick, you know, like they can discuss things that they do meet every day in terms of whether or not they are like humans. Like they can discuss people that we meet every day in terms of whether or not they are like fogs or angels or other things that we don't generally relate to. And so that, that seems to be how they're using humans, especially when Mr. Deeper says anything that looks human isn't. Like they know what they are. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, given the apparently semi-mythic status of humans within Narnian culture, it is interesting that they seem to be so central. Um, as you say, that's that's this is the again. It might not be, might be a little bit misguided, but anyway, it's Mr. Beaver's standard of measurement uh, in some sense, and that's 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 kind of interesting. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, there's sort of. I guess with our fascination with like the talking animals and such, it's sort of like a reverse role of them being fascinated with us, I think. Like they they address the humans by like titles of lineage, like sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. So they they have some sort of like some sort of knowledge, I guess, of a history. Uh, some, some I don't know, they it seems to be another position of like mystery. Yeah, the lineage, I mean, the, the connection to Adam and Eve, one effect of it, of course, I mean, <laughs> my favorite moment there is Peter's response. Um, they say, are you the, the, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve? And Peter says, we're some of them. <laughs> uh, and that, I think, is one of the effects of that title that they're given, like you know, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, is they're, they're humans. That is obviously, the Narnians don't differentiate among humans. There's no question of like, well, okay, but like what sort of human are you? Or what race of human are you? Or anything like that. All humans are in the same category for them. Um, and that's why we go back to Adam and Eve. Right? All humans coming from the same origin, and that's the way that they're all identified. Um, which, of course, then leads me to the prophecy, because, of course, we have a very specific way in which humans are to be related to Narnia. What is it? What is humans' job in Narnia? Occupy the earth. Yeah, to rule. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bones sit in care paravel and throne, then what? The evil times will be over and done. Exactly. All of Mr. Beaver's prophecies don't quite rhyme in modern English. Uh, but of course, you see the effect of that, by the way? The, the effect of the non-rhyming is that it gives it a sense of antiquity to those prophecies. Like they used to rhyme before the vowel shift, which would have been true of, all, of both of them. Both of them would have rhymed perfectly well prior to the Great Vowel Shift. Um, and they haven't changed since then, even though the language has. Um, there's lots more I would like to say about the rulership of humans. We can't escape without saying anything about Santa Claus. 
Why is Father Christmas here? Why, of all, as, as I mentioned, of all of the sort of mythological characters that have been chucked into Narnia, Santa Claus seems the strangest and most disconnected to everything else. Especially since there is, and I think this is pretty clear, no religious connotation of Christmas in this book. Nobody talks about Christmas as, any, as a religious holiday of any kind. When we say Christmas, when we say always oh, winter and never Christmas in this book, what are we talking about? Presents. Presents. Plum pudding. <laughs> right? We see like the presents and, and, and it's like food and parties and presents is what we seem to be exclusively talking about in this book. And when Father Christmas comes around, this is what we get. Not just the children, but the other, as we see from when the witch comes across the party in the glade, right? With all the little animals celebrating Christmas. And the gifts they've received from Father Christmas are plum pudding and <laughs> lots of good traditional English Christmas foods. Also, Christmas is usually around the winter solstice, which is the longest day of night, and then it gets progressively lighter until spring is coming. So I guess that's more the connotation I took from the Father Christmas, the fact that it's always dark and always winter, and there's right. no hope of spring alive. Right. Yeah, it's winter, but you never get to that turning point. The days never start getting longer. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's certainly, it's certainly the overall effect of that, of the witch's winter. Um, it is endless, and there is no there is no sense of an end in sight. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Lots more to be said about Santa Claus too. Be thinking about Santa Claus and his gifts, Father Christmas, and the gifts of Father Christmas, which are going to be iconic <coughs> throughout the first three books. That is, until the Pevensey kids stop coming to Narnia, you're going to keep coming back to these gifts. Um, so the gifts of Father Christmas here are clearly very important and I want to think more about his overall role what's his point and specifically what seems to be his relationship with Aslan as it's the coming of the two of them which show that the witch's reign is just about over more especially about Aslan next time have a good weekend that's all for this episode Next time, Professor Olson will finish with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 12 through 17. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.